If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to Psalm 49. Psalm 49, that's where we're going to be as we continue our series through the Psalms. Uh, a few months back, back in April of this year, the New Yorker ran a big spread with this title. Listen to this title. The title of the article is this. Silicon Valley's Quest to Live Forever, colon. Can billions of dollars worth of high-tech research succeed in making death optional? End quote. It's a fascinating article I'm going to leave you to read for yourself. In a way, it's new. Silicon Valley is doing things no one's ever done before. They're producing gadgets, technologies that couldn't have been imagined 20 years ago, much less 200 years ago. In a way, their quest is as old as human life itself. And as long as there's been wealth, there has been an attempt to use wealth to try to push back death. The psalm we're going to look at this morning is on this contest. A contest that shows up in every era. In its own way, always a different spin on it, but the same underlying contest between death and its coming and Money and its power, its allure. The psalm we're going to look at this morning is one that's not very familiar, I think. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. You can come tell me later if it's familiar to you. But the last few weeks we've been looking at psalms that are really familiar, some of everybody's favorites. And maybe you were starting to think, if you've been with us for the series up until now, that we were only going to pick the best ones. <laughs> only going to pick the ones that everybody loves already. The ones that are obvious in their meaning and easy to find encouragement in. And we do want to pick some of those and try to help us understand them more deeply and use them more, more, uh, more fully. But we also want to sprinkle in some psalms that are less familiar. And the one that we're going to look at this morning, I think, is one of those. It's also part of a kind of psalm, part of a category of psalms that's much less familiar. Not a, it's not a psalm of praise or a psalm of thanksgiving or even one of the lament psalms like we looked at last week where, we're, where the psalmist is, is crying out to God asking, How long, O Lord? When will you change? Fill in the blank. Something that, they, that, that was troubling the psalmist. This one's not like that at all. This one's what's, this one's what's called a wisdom psalm. We looked at one of these a few weeks back. Matt Givens led us through Psalm 1, which is a psalm that reads a whole lot like one of the Proverbs. A, a two ways to live psalm. Choose the right way. The wise and not the foolish way. This one's a wisdom psalm that looks a lot more like the book of Ecclesiastes. About where value is to be found in a world where everything is passing away. Wisdom in the Bible is, is, is not like head knowledge. It isn't like smarts. Or intellect it isn't the kind of thing that you that you that gets you into prestigious graduate schools. Wisdom in the Bible is more like an instinct. It's more like what you need when you're driving in traffic. You don't need facts that you memorized to get your learner's permit. You need wisdom honed from experience about whether or not you've got time to turn in front of that oncoming traffic when the light turns yellow. You just need gut instinct. That's wise. And wealth, in particular, is one of, the, one of the most common topics that comes up in the Bible's wisdom literature. Because wealth is one of these areas that isn't often scripted by law in the Bible. Wisdom is what you need when you don't have a roadmap. We don't have a clear set of do's and don'ts. You just need a right instinct. And wealth comes up a lot in the Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes and 
in, in its own way in Job and comes up here in this psalm. And it, it comes up in wisdom literature because what you need is, is, is an instinct for using money in a way that honors God. Another way to say it is that we need wisdom to know what it looks like to worship God with our money rather than worshiping our money as our God. See, worship in the Bible, it's not just about what you do at the temple or to put it in our categories. It's just what we're doing right now here when we gather, when we sing and read and pray and listen to the Bible. Worship is far more than just what we do in the ceremonial, ritual aspects of our gatherings together. Worship is something that spreads throughout all of life in the Bible. And wisdom is an instinct for how to worship God, for how to fear Him, for how to privilege Him in your mind and heart in every area of your life. What we're going to look at this morning is is what it looks like to, to be wise about wealth. And what we're going to see is that one of the clearest paths to wisdom when it comes to wealth is to see wealth in light of death. To recognize the contest that always exists between wealth and the power that comes from it and death and its power to erase. What we're going to see too is that this wisdom about wealth and what death does to wealth is also a straight path to the promise that God has made to us in Jesus. Promise of a ransom that no wealth could ever afford to pay. Of a life that no wealth could ever extend. Of healing and hope that could only happen if God himself has broken into the world as it is to change what wisdom has told us is true. That's what we're going to try to understand this morning. We're going to try to walk that path together from wisdom into God's promise so that we can see how it sets us free. Free not to worship or serve our money, but to use it for God's glory. That's where we are this morning. I want to, I want to begin by reading the entire psalm. We're going to take it in bits and pieces, but I want to first read it for you so that you get a sense of the whole. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read Psalm 49. What I want you to notice at the beginning in the first four verses is it's just an open call. This is one of the, one of the things that marks it as a wisdom psalm as opposed to a praise psalm that's directed to God. It's an open call to anyone everywhere to listen to the proverb he's about to spill for us. After those first verses, then we get into the meat of the psalm. Let's hear God's word together. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. What is his riddle? Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that that even the wise die, 
The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish." This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to begin by making sure that the wisdom of this psalm comes through clearly. And to understand the wisdom of this psalm means understanding what death does to wealth. That's its main topic. Did you notice how in the opening call to the psalm, he's calling rich and poor, both of you, come, young and old, high and low, Like all wisdom, this speaks to everybody everywhere. I think the reason he starts out by making sure he knows this is a message for everybody, not just for some of you, is that he takes as his starting point for his psalm inequality. The difference between the rich and the poor. The difference between, in particular, the rich who get there by oppressing the poor. His question in verse 5 is a question that's asked in other psalms too. Basically, it boils down to this. Why do the wicked prosper? If God cares about the righteous and hears their prayer, then how come so many good, innocent people are suffering and so many wicked people just keep on, keep on getting more and more wealthy? Some Psalms take up that problem as a, as a kind of protest. We're going to look at one of those in a couple of weeks. As a kind of question to God, God, what are you doing? I can't make sense of what I see in the prosperity of the wicked and what you've told me about justice and your love for it and your promise to uphold it. But this psalm isn't one of those protest psalms. This one's not shaking a fist at anyone. This psalm is not even addressed to God. It's addressed to everyone else. And it's meant to correct our view of inequality. It's not telling us that inequality is not a problem. The Bible's full of language that condemns the use of wealth to oppress other people. It's actually just telling us that inequality is temporary. That inequality is not ultimate. That there is an underlying equality between all people that is far more fundamental than any inequality they might cling to. It's ultimately a warning to people who think their wealth can protect them. I want to walk through a couple of these details. Make sure you can see the point that he's making and the the power of some of the images he's using. Then I want to make sure we can see ourselves in it. 
So I'm going to just walk you through some of the details and come back over them a second time and make sure we're getting the, the, the wisdom of this psalm for our own lives and not, and not assuming that this psalm is talking about someone other than us. In verse 10, we get to the meat of it, to the heart of what the psalmist wants us to see. That yes, right now, some people trusting in their wealth, boasting about their riches, cheat people who can't resist them. But it won't always be that way. And the reason, verse 10 says, is that the wise and the fool and the stupid alike must die. And even the most wealthy of wealthy people in the end just leave their wealth to others. They may build palaces decked out in the finest furniture. They may have the greatest works of art yet known to man hung in the perfect places and the perfect walls with the perfect light. They may have the best gadgets that money can buy in their time or ours. But this psalm says their only lasting home is their grave. I almost imagine him thinking of a rich uh, landowner, maybe a kind of medieval feudal lord, who could come out onto his porch of his mansion, sipping a cup of coffee in a night, on a nice cool morning, and look around as far as his eye could see, and know that as far as he could see, everything he could see was his. Every person, every object, every tree, every blade of grass, named by his name. I think that's who the psalmist has in mind, and he's telling us they may call lands by their own names. They may have the audacity to take something that has been there thousands and thousands of years before them and will be there thousands and thousands of years after them and call it theirs. But in the end, there's only one piece of real estate you really get to own. And that is the hole in which they lay your corpse. That is dark, isn't it? It even gets creepier from there. I think the creepiest part is in verse 14. Like sheep, he tells us, these wealthy people, these powerful who think that their riches can protect them, like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol, the place of the dead. And then, did you notice what comes next? Death itself is their shepherd. He personifies death, not like some sort of grim reaper, but as a shepherd just guiding sheep along. So what he's, what he's showing us here, what he's trying to bring to the surface through this image, I think, is that is that we get the wealthy all wrong. We look at their lives, filling their lives with tailor-made appointments, with houses that are exactly what they want, and stuff in those houses that are exactly what they want, with clothes that are making the exact statement about themselves that they want. We see them as building enviable lives, lives that make exactly the statements they want them to make about who they are and about their own tastes. We look at them building, climbing ladders, kicking buckets, tailor-making perfect lives, and it looks like they're in control. 
But what he's telling us is that they're just lemmings walking a line. They are following a pied piper. They are walking with the herd of senseless sheep following their shepherd to the end. Ultimately, no matter their wealth, verse 14 tells us, they have no place to dwell. They are homeless. It's the point of verse 12 too. It's the first first place that this refrain comes up. Man in his pomp will not remain. That not remain word, uh, one way to translate it, one author put it, is there's no such thing as overnight lodging. What he's doing is putting us a, a, a contrast between what the wealthy think about themselves with their wealth as stable, trustworthy, secure, as if they could build a lasting home. And what death says about their wealth, that they have no home in this world. Now, that's some dark imagery. If you think of that as morbid, I won't argue with you. But you should know that the Bible is full of language like this. Full of it. And that the fact that it lands on us the way it does says more about us than it does about the Bible. It says that we have lost touch with reality. We've gotten out of step with what's true. And we need to sit under the wisdom of this psalm for a few minutes here and make sure we see ourselves in it before we move to the good news. So I want to say again something I said a moment ago. Do not hear the psalmist saying that inequality between rich and poor is not a problem. If you want to hear what the Bible has to say about inequality, especially the sorts of inequality that depend on the oppression of the weak by the strong, go read the prophet Amos, among other places, and you'll see what the Bible thinks about the problem of inequality. It's not that inequality isn't something worth taking seriously. The Bible does take it seriously. But inequality is not ultimate. Wealth, there's no sense denying that wealth can buy you a lot in this world. It can. It can buy you bigger houses and faster cars. It can buy you a better education. It can buy you a better criminal defense. It can buy you a better prosecutor, maybe even a favorable judge or a jury if you have enough money and the right judge. Stats show it can even buy you better life expectancy, probably due to the fact that money can buy you better food. It can buy you better housing. It can buy you... uh, better uh, better, better uh, opportunities for, for rest and rejuvenation and leisure. It's even possible to assume that you can buy your way out of death. Or not just assume it. How about actually try to do it? Go read the New Yorker article that I mentioned. Silicon Valley's quest to live forever. It's got several different things that they're trying out there. Not apps. Not quite that simple but several different things to, to maybe replace the parts of your body as they fail to make sure you keep staying current with the latest updates or to find the special gene that's the key to longevity and health and learn how to manipulate it and, and, and control it. Sometimes we laugh at that. We think there's no way we would go for it. Even if we had their money, there's no way we would go for something like that. We know people can't live forever. But, but still, friends, I believe our investment in our own wealth and what it provides us is one of the clearest signs in us that we are detached from the truth about death. 
And it's a detachment that is dangerous for our souls. Think about how we yearn for more, no matter what we have, how we yearn to have more. How we stress over money. How we chase the quick-hitting thrill of something new. How much time we spend stressing over the messages we're sending by the color of the shirt that we wear or by the pictures we hang on our walls, by the angle of the couch or the chair in the room. How we try to so perfectly tailor our stuff and its presentation to make exactly the statement about us we want others to receive. Do you think we would labor over our stuff in the way that we do if we thought of our stuff as nothing more than staging someone else's estate sale? You have to forgive me if I've used this before, but this is something that sticks in my mind, and, and, and especially, especially in light of this psalm. I read the language of verses 16 to 19. Listen to these verses again. Be unafraid when a man becomes rich, when the, the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory doesn't go down after him. He might get praised because of how great his tastes were or how much he accomplished, how much he acquired. And while he's living, he might count himself blessed, but in the end, his soul goes to the same place as everyone else's. I think of that language. I've thought of that language when, when I've visited estate sales around town. And maybe you guys have never experienced this. I, I go to estate sales every now and then because when, when books are advertised. I'm on this email list from this estate sale place. They send me one and they tell you everything that's going to be there. And they include pictures. And so when books are in the advertisement, I just look at the pictures and I see how big is their shelf. Do they look like they had game? Okay, I'm going to go see what they had. So, one of the, but, but with language like this in the, in the background... I can't go to these sales anymore without thinking down a certain line. You think about the stuff that's in these people's houses and how personal it would have been to them. It's almost always sales staged by the family members of someone who's died and it's to get rid of stuff their family members didn't want to try to recoup some of the value. So you see all these items that would have been deeply personal and beloved to them. Every rug they chose on purpose. Those lamps, they were put right there because that's where they wanted light. The, the chairs that maybe they sat in to read in the evenings. The books that they would have liked or not liked, would have told their friends about, would have read, read with friends as part of a book group. All of these items having stories to them, important to them, labored over by them, carefully curated by them. It's all for sale now, everything. The last time I went to one, I noticed in the line that I had to have been at least... 30 years younger than the average age in the line. I'm going to put it at around 75 years old, average age in the line in front of me. So this was, a, this was a, an estate sale in an upstairs like uh, condo, basically. So they could only let a certain number of people up at a time. So you had to stand in line, kind of queue up uh, next to the elevator and wait for your turn. And I was just looking around me at the line and thinking, uh, I mean... How much older would the person have died have been than the average age in the line? I don't know. That, that at best, you're going to rent somebody else's lamp for another 10, 20 years? At best? And then the next short step was, who am I kidding? 
the rest of my life is a breath. I'm going to rent somebody else's books for a few years before someone else is buying them at my estate sale. That is exactly what the psalm is wanting us to notice. He's wanting us to think like that. He's wanting us to say, what, you think the rich have it all? They don't take any of it with them. How much would we stress over the messages we're sending by our clothes or our houses or our cars or whatever else? How much would we love the fact that our bank account balances keep climbing and not declining? If we thought of ourselves as putting all of this time and effort into the staging of someone else's opportunity for bargain prices. See, friends, your pursuit of wealth, my pursuit of wealth, it's not just greedy though it might be. It isn't just proud, though it might be that too. It isn't just negligent of the needs of other people, though it might be. Whatever else it might be, our pursuit of wealth is foolish. A waste of time and effort and emotional and mental energy. It's futile. And we can't see Jesus and our need for him clearly until we see the truth about death. Can't happen. And this psalm is here to land body blow after body blow, to put into our minds dark image after dark image, to get us ready for a shaft of light that comes cutting through a promise of God's goodness and mercy that we won't see as beautiful until we've seen this darkness. This promise comes through in verse 15. Wisdom about the world as it is prepares us to see and to love the word that God has spoken to us. A promise that he is going to change the world as it is. That he is going to make a new and better future possible by his grace. This passage, verse 15, is what one writer called one of the mountaintops of Old Testament hope. But before you can see that mountaintop, I want to back up a little bit. I want to, we're here talking about this promise. We need to see what Jesus does to death. We need to also notice, before we can connect with verse 15 and what it tells us, we need to understand the message of verses 7 to 9. They're the backdrop. Verse 7 comes on the heels of the psalmist's question. He's asked, Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the wealthy are oppressing me for their own gain. Why should I fear? I shouldn't, is the implication. I shouldn't fear. Why not? Well, verse 7 says, No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly, and it can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. I shouldn't trouble myself about the way the rich are cheating me because the rich aren't really rich. Not really. Not ultimately. That's what he's telling himself. And the reason is that they can't buy back their lives. He's using this language of ransom. In the ancient world, think of some leader or king captured in some sort of ancient battle. And now the, 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 the enemy has the king of this nation. And they hold him for ransom. They're holding him until... the. The, the people that he belongs to can come up with a price that's valuable enough for them to trade, to trade them back. For a ransom to work, what you have to have is some resource that the other side on the ransom doesn't have but wants. What you have to have is something that's not theirs, it's yours. 
And it's more valuable to them than the thing they have of yours. So to get your king back, you have to offer them something they want more than the life of that king. Something of yours, something that's not theirs yet. And what the psalmist is saying here is that there is nothing a person could ever offer God to buy his life back from death. Why? Why is that? Why is a life too precious to ever be ransomed back, no matter how much money you have? Understanding where he's coming from, it really requires that we understand what the Bible thinks about death overall. The psalmist is assuming some knowledge here. He's assuming that people would have read the book of Genesis. That they would have known that death in the Bible is not normal. It is not natural. It's normal now, but it is not and never will be natural. The Lion King is a great movie. Much enjoyed by the McCullough household. But it gets death tragically wrong. You think of that circle of life song, you know, where the monkey is holding up the baby lion at that dramatic moment and they're singing about the circle of life and how, you know, lions eat the antelope and that's how they keep going and then the lions die and it feeds the grass that the antelope eat then they get eaten by the lions that die and feed the grass and so on and so on and death is just part of life. It's just how we keep going. Nothing to see here. No reason to shed a tear. The Bible would say that's just foolish that is a lie and you know it in your gut death is not just one of those things that keeps the world spinning it is an assault on everything that's good and right and true and beautiful in the life of every human individual that is too wonderful too significant to just disappear death is an enemy it is evil and tragic and awful but It is not, according to the Bible, inappropriate. Death in the Bible is a punishment. A punishment perfectly suited to fit a very specific crime. It's perfectly matched to human sin. And what the Bible tells us is that every one of our lives comes as a gift from God. He is the one who imagined it. It is his power that created it, and it is, it is his just free decision to keep on giving it to us, day after day, breath after breath. It all belongs to him. That's what the Bible says about every one of our lives. But in, when, when we sin, what we're saying is that this life belongs to me. It's mine to do with what I will. My resource to use as I see fit. What we're saying is that God is not responsible for my life. That it doesn't come from Him. That it isn't ultimately for Him. And death, every time, sets the record straight. Death tells each one of us, you cannot choose to be immortal. You can choose to do what you will with the resources God has put into your life But at some point, your choices end. You cannot choose to live forever. And in death, what we see is God taking back what belongs to him. Showing clearly, inarguably, that it was never ours to begin with. It belongs to him. And this is the reason that no one can ever buy back their life. Anything else they might use to try to pay for it already belongs to God. Every dollar you ever owned is His. Just like every breath you've ever taken. 
So you can amass more wealth than anyone ever has in the history of the world and say, here, God, how about this? Could this buy back my life? Is this enough? And God would be able justly to say to you, already mine. There is only one way anyone can ever be ransomed from death. The only way anyone can ever be ransomed from death is if God himself pays the price. Only if God gives up something infinitely valuable but completely undeserved, not owed already. And that is exactly what the psalmist believes God will do. Read verse 15 again. It's, think of it as a shaft of light coming down into this darkness of this otherwise dark psalm. The psalmist is confident in the midst of darkness. He says, but God, therefore may be consumed in Sheol. They may have no home, no place to dwell. But God, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. I will have a home by his grace with him. Man in his pomp will not remain, but God will receive me. This writer spoke more clearly and more truly than he could have ever imagined. He spoke of exactly what God planned to do about death. Friends, this language of verse 15 is echoed all through the New Testament. God will ransom me, the psalmist is confident. And Jesus in Mark 10 says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. It shows up in the same language in 1 Peter, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament about the gospel. But one of my favorite places to see this language echoed, especially because of that creepy image of death as a shepherd, is John 10. In John 10, Jesus is explaining to people who weren't looking for him exactly what he came to give them. In John 10, Jesus tells them, I came that you might have life, that you might have life abundantly. And in his life-giving role, the image he chooses for himself is the image of a good shepherd. What makes this shepherd good? John 10.10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, the one who doesn't own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, Jesus says, and he leaves him, flees. The wolf snatches those sheep and scatters them. That shepherd flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But not me. Not me. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep so that the sheep can live again. It sets up one of Jesus' clear statements of the gospel. In the next chapter, in John 11, by the graveside of his friend Lazarus, he promises, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In that verse, think of the echo of verse 9 in our psalm. The ransom of their life is costly. It'll never suffice that he should live on forever and never see death. And Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me will never see death. Same language. It's almost like Jesus had it in mind. 
Friends, the message of the gospel is this to you this morning. There is nothing you can do in your life to make up for what you've already done. You have lived life just like I have, as if it's yours to live and not God's. There's no rolling that back. There's no making up for it because there's nothing you could do now that you don't already owe to him. Perfect obedience from this day forward to the end of your life will just be what you already owe him. You can't make up for what you've done. But the message of the gospel is that you do not have to. That God has paid a price you couldn't pay for yourself. That the good shepherd has come to you to take his sheep back from death and he has laid down his own infinitely valuable life for yours. So friends, your choice is this. You can have death for your shepherd or you can have Jesus, your choice. And when you take Jesus for your shepherd, well then you can know true freedom. Even when it comes to your money. This third point that I've got on the guide is not a point I want to unpack. It's one I want to just send you to your friends to unpack with together. What does Jesus' victory over death, his promise to give us life, do to how we use our money? Well, I don't know, actually. It depends. It takes wisdom. You need new instincts. And that means you need your friends to try to help you and to bring them into what seems like a private area of your life and treat it as if it's exposed to the light, not, of, not only of of, of God and his word, but also of your friends and their instincts and wisdom that they can share with you. But here's what I want to point you to. If Jesus has won a victory over death, a victory that no amount of money could have ever bought for you, if he has already given to you something more precious than life itself, well, then that sets you free from greed. That sets you free from envy. And it sets you free to worship. It sets you free from greed because Jesus had already, has already given you what the most wealthy person alive could not buy. You cannot add value to what is yours already. So, so that is a call to us to stop spending so much mental energy chasing the next purchase. To stop giving so much of our happiness, letting it rise and fall with what our account balances show or the next shopping spree we might go on. We need to fight our greed with wisdom about what death does to whatever we might get and then medicate with Jesus who promises everything we need is ours already. It sets us free from greed. It sets us free from envy. How often have you thought, even as a Christian, looked at someone else's life and thought, well, they have Jesus and they have all this other stuff. I'd rather have Jesus plus. It's easy to think. I've thought that. This psalm is telling us, you can't think like that. You're thinking like a fool. You already have what no amount of money could ever buy. Like Whatever else they have that you don't, like it adds nothing that lasts. We're thinking wrong. We need, to, we need to reset. We need to let wisdom reset how we think about what other people have. And remind us that ours is an inheritance that is beyond the ability of any moth or rust to destroy, to put our treasure there. And that's how this wisdom and this promise set us free for worship. See, friends, envy and greed that are so natural to us, they come from vastly underestimating the value of Jesus. Sometimes you can hear people talk about treasuring him, and it seems so abstract. It's hard to know how you could treasure something that you can't see, someone you can't actually talk to or hear speak back to you in the way that we're used to. It can seem like just church speak, this talk of treasuring Jesus. I think this psalm helps us bring it down to earth more. 
What it means to treasure Jesus is to realize what death does to treasure so you can realize what Jesus has given you. Jesus has given us by his victory something we could never have bought, something that is more valuable than anything we might ever accomplish or acquire in this life. Jesus has given us a home. He's given us a path to the same faith that led Abraham out of the only home he'd ever known into a promised land that wasn't his yet, living in tents rather than laying foundations while he looked for a city that was to come. Hebrews 11 points us to that faith. One of the most wonderful ways to worship Jesus doesn't happen here on Sunday morning, doesn't happen in the hour and a half that we have together. It happens when we choose not to use our money, not to love our money as if it's going to last. But to love Jesus and what he gives us and the home that he's promised us. We're going to need each other to hold on for that home and to love it with full hearts. So I want to pray now. Before we sing some songs that are based in this message, I want to pray that God will help us to see true, truly what this world is and what he's promised to make of it. Father, we do want to see with the eyes of faith the beauty and value of what Jesus has been for us. Would you help us? Thank you for the gift of this psalm and its wisdom, even though it's hard to read and hear, even though we sometimes would rather shrink back from its message. Thank you for its clarity and for the way that it prepares us for a promise of ransom that you will give to us. Now help us. We've heard it. We want to we we understand it, love it, and experience its power in our lives. Would you help us help each other to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.